ways, the justification of believers under the Old Testament was exactly the same as the justification of believers in the New Testament. And I think we have discussed this before, but I'm curious uh, for who of us, and this isn't right or wrong, again, this is sometimes I ask experienced questions because I don't want to project my own experience or my own personal history on anyone else. Uh, we tend to think our own experience is normal, and sometimes it's not. Uh, but, so I'd be curious, for how many is this an old idea that Abram was justified the same way you are? And for how many is this a new idea? So I'm curious, is this an old idea that Abram was saved by, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ the same way you are? Is that an old idea? Okay. Is that a new idea? Okay. Okay, so we've got a little bit of both and mostly uh, abstentions. So I'm not sure what's up with you people. Uh, but this is an important thing to take note of, is that the saints in the Old Testament were saved the same way that you are. There is no difference uh, other than we've moved from promise to substance. And that's what uh, a, a robust understanding of covenant theology helps us to see is how these types and shadows get filled in by the substance, which is Jesus Christ in the new covenant. Uh, but what's happening in the old covenant is really just types and shadows and promises uh, that this confession talks about. Uh, it moves along in further steps until we arrive at the substance. So this is like scaffolding these promises to the Old Testament saints. It's like scaffolding that's being built. Once the building is erected, which is Jesus Christ, establishing his Christian church, the scaffolding can come down. Okay? That's how covenant theology works. That's why we don't do blood sacrifices today. That's why uh, we can do what we want with our facial hair. That's why we're allowed to eat shrimp and lobster and bacon. Okay? That's why I can wear mixed fabric. Because those old types and shadows fall away. The moral law does not, of course. Uh, but the old covenant system was the training wheels, or in Galatians it's talked about uh, as a trust. It's like a down payment. Um, it, it held us under the law. It's like a schoolmaster kind of teaching us. But once the substance arrives, uh, we see the fullness of it. And the types and shadows have been filled in with substance. Uh, and I'll maybe stop there. Does that way of conceptualizing it make sense? We move from promise to fulfillment. We move from types to substance. Does that make sense? Okay. Does it make sense that the scaffolding goes once the, sub once the building is done? Okay. One of the mysteries of the pyramids in Egypt is that we don't know how it happened because whatever scaffolding they used is no longer necessary because the pyramid's been built, right? Uh, and we do that the same way with modern construction. But that's not just my idea or the idea of the men who wrote this confession. Let's look at what the Bible says about this. And so I'm curious, who is willing to read Galatians 3 verse 9 to start us off? Kenan. And then I saw Keith's hand here. So Keith, why don't you take Romans 4? I should have looked at that passage, but I think the relevant part starts well before verse 22. So pick up where it starts talking about Abram's faith. I don't know where that is, but it's before verse 22 somewhere. All right. Kenan, please go ahead and read Galatians 3 verse 9. Okay, very good.
Okay, very good. So you see here how Paul is actually repeating a promise that God gave to Abraham himself back in Genesis. This was always the plan. A multi-ethnic church is not a parenthesis in time. It's not a different track of salvation. It's not God's plan B when plan A didn't work out. The Christian church of Jews and Gentiles was promised to Abraham. Okay? This is not plan B. This is not a catch-up because the thing with Israel didn't work out. It did work out. This was promised all along that the Gentiles would be grafted in and that through Abram all the nations of the earth, that's us, would be blessed. And so who are his sons? Who are the sons of Abram? Who are the sons of Abram? I can't hear anyone. Those who believe. Yeah. Jeremy, a last name like Mandel does not sound Hebrew. No. Okay? And it probably isn't. What? You're telling me you're a son of Abram. Okay. But you're not Hebrew. No, you're not. I don't know ethnically what Hutterites are. Czech? Tyrolish? European? Eastern European? Whatever. Okay? Uh, and I would assume we could say the same about Ron. Hamster, that sounds Frisian. Are you a son of Abram? With no Jewish lineage in your background that you're aware of. Interesting. Okay? Ron and Jeremy were promised as sons to Abraham. Okay? Before the history of Israel unfolded. Israel is a first step to get to Israel. Okay? It's a first step. It's a promise. And the Christian church is its fulfillment. Jew and Gentile together. And that's much of the New Testament is about drilling that theme home. Galatians certainly is about how those types and shadows and those promises and those old covenants are fulfilled. And Galatians 4 is actually a glorious argument uh, using the women, Hagar and Sarah, to show that clearly in the New Covenant era, this is not about ethnicity. That old system has clearly dropped away. And the church today is a believing church, not an ethnic church. And I think we see that here. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, you are a true son of Abram. And many of Abram's own natural sons are not Israelite in any way, shape, or form. Okay? There's lots of people today with the last name Bar something or Bat something that are not sons and daughters of Abram. And there's plenty of people with English and Germanic uh, and African names that are sons of Abram. Okay? So this is about... Uh, Faith in Christ, this is not about what your genetic background is. Um, and I'll stop there. Questions on that? Does that make sense? Does that seem odd? Keith? Right, so the way, okay, because a lot of the, the, like the Hebrew roots movement is not ethnically Jewish. 
but they, yeah. So the way they see themselves as the new Israel is by becoming like the old Israel through food restrictions, the ceremonial law being resurrected and so forth. So they see themselves, and this is always amazing to me, that people revert back, even in the new covenant, to genealogy and to national boundaries. Because it's like the whole book of Acts and Galatians and Hebrews was written just specifically so nobody would ever get that idea in their head. <laughs> that this is once again about genetics. But in the, the, the Hebrews roots movement, particularly in the black Hebrew roots movement, um, they're resurrecting the ceremonial law and the dietary restrictions and those kinds of things to become very much like Old Testament believers were. And so they, yeah, they, they would see themselves as being able to be grafted in, but they're grafted in by the law rather than by faith in Christ. Yeah, and it's always arbitrary. Yeah, circumcision is always harder to <laughs> implement than food laws. But really, it, and that's Paul's argument in Galatians. If you guys are going to play this game, play it all the way. In fact, Paul uses some sanctified sarcasm, and he says, if you guys want to do this, if you want to go back to circumcision, if cutting off flesh on your reproductive organ is a sign of piety, I would challenge you guys to go all the way. Just castrate yourselves completely. That's Paul's argument. If you want to play that game, play it. <laughs> Cut the whole thing off. Okay? It's, it's, it's remarkable to me that things like that exist because it's just so clear. Hebrews was written specifically so that no one would ever get that idea in their head. And all the controversies with the apostles and Acts, it's like nobody ever invent this idea, please. And here we are resurrecting ceremonial law. It's, it is remarkable to me. Dave. And that would bring up an interesting point. So if we don't get it, maybe one way not to give ourselves a pass, but maybe the fact that we're 2,000 years in and we still don't get it, maybe just shows we're not actually so different from Israel. <laughs> we learn pretty slow, right? We learn slow. Um, but Dave brings up an interesting point, and this is kind of on the side, but not really. Dave brought up verse 29. Let's look at... Um, verse 27 and 28, because this is a contemporary argument that frequently gets used. And let's remember what Paul's talking about here. Paul's talking about Gentile inclusion into one multi-ethnic church. And then he says in verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is, not, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abram's offspring, heirs according to promise. Who has heard that neither Jew nor Greek, neither male nor female, to uh, justify things like female ordination, female church officers, right? Has anyone heard that? I've heard it lots, <laughs> okay? So Paul says there's neither male nor female. Women can be 
elders, women can be deacons, women can be, uh, you know, pastors, and so forth. Is that what Paul's saying here? Let's think about this in an absolute sense. Are male and female present realities in this church? Yeah, they are. Okay, so is this an absolute obliteration of gender? Not at all. Does everyone in this room have an actual ethnicity? Yeah. So Paul's not saying ethnicity doesn't exist anymore. And he's not saying gender doesn't exist anymore. And he's not saying social and economic class don't exist anymore. Those are all very much present realities. What's he saying? What's he saying? In what sense do none of these things count? That you're in Christ. Salvation. Yeah, because he's resting it in baptism. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ to put on Christ. Women can put on Christ. A poor Gentile can put on Christ. A rich Jew can put on Christ. Okay? God is no respecter of persons. All these people have equal access to the throne of grace. And there is no more distinction uh, in the kingdom of God. In the new covenant church, there is zero distinction. Dave. Well, yeah, I'm not sure I totally catch what you're saying. So you're bringing up that in the Old Covenant, the sign and the seal was circumcision, which obviously applies to boys only. And now in the New Covenant, we're moving from that sign to the sign of baptism, which is for boys and girls, male and female. Only boys were circumcised. Yeah, and I think that's a perfectly legitimate application because clearly as Christians we baptize male and female. Yeah. So, and, and that shows again that as covenants go through history they always get bigger and better. Okay? The scaffolding keeps going higher as we move through history until the building is erected. Jeremy. I think absolutely. In Ephesians, maybe in Ephesians 4, I think it talks about the dividing wall. Right? There was an actual physical dividing wall outside the temple called the Sorek. And there was a sign there that threatened uh, any Gentile that goes past this point as taking their life into their own hands. There was a, an expectation of instant death for Gentiles to walk past a certain point. And then, of course, as you move more and more into the Holy of Holies, Finally, only the chief priest is allowed to go into the, the absolute inner sanctuary. But there's, there's different barriers as you move out from the Holy of Holies, who's permitted in and who's not. What does Jesus do when he dies? He rips the veil from top to bottom. You and me and Diane have equal access to the Holy of Holies that the chief priest had in the old system because we have a new chief priest, Jesus Christ. And he tore that veil, interestingly, from top to bottom. Okay, so all people, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, male, female, have access to God through the ministry of Jesus Christ. So I, I think when we, when we read something about the dividing wall of hostility, 
I think we have a general conception of what that means, but let's remember how significant a dividing wall of hostility was when this new church was figuring out (laughs) how to incorporate dirty Gentiles into it. Because the church was at first very Jewish. And so to let these dirty Gentiles in would have seemed outlandish. And that's why I think so much scripture is dedicated to that tension of what does Gentile inclusion in the church actually look like. There was another hand here. Keith. Uh, no. <laughs> no, because, the, well, and there's an interesting point there. Okay, so does that mean anyone can be a pastor? No. It also doesn't mean anyone can be a woman. Okay? This is not the obliteration of distinctions. This is saying what those distinctions were meant to teach. Uh, and the church, how is the church always described in the Bible in terms of gendered identity? What is the church? A bride. A woman. Okay? Keith, in your marriage, and in all marriages, as it should be, who is the head? You are. Why? Okay, and why you? Why not Karame? Okay. A bride is necessarily led by a husband. Necessarily so. You cannot, and I will say this, this might sound strong in our age, but I absolutely mean it and will defend this to the uttermost. You cannot have women's ordination without fundamentally changing the entire character of what a church is. Because you have lost all sense of mission in the world. You have lost all sense of teleology or cosmology or vision because a woman must be led by a husband. You cannot have the bride of Christ being led by other women. It changes the whole dynamic. Everything changes. Okay? It's, it's as atrocious. It, it, well, essentially, female ordination was the first thing that the church did to say yes to same-sex marriage. It's saying gender doesn't matter. The church led the world into disobedience. Okay? Methodists were ordaining women before Americans were putting women in fighter jet cockpits. Sometimes the, the church leads the world into disobedience. You, you, I, forget, I think C.S. Lewis who said, if you think war is dirty now, wait till women start fighting wars. Okay? That's when it will get very cruel. It, you're changing the nature of the thing. You're changing the nature of the church. You're changing the nature of marriage if we get this uh, wrong. So, but I cut you off. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Keith is not a closet liberal. (laughs) I say that on good authority. He's asking good questions to stimulate discussion. Okay? And I know it sounds strong, but can you see that the fact of women's ordination necessarily changes what the church is? Okay? That's a strong comment. But but it can can we see that that's a reasonable comment? It changes what the church is if it's not led by men. I hope, uh, it's quiet, but I hope you all see that point. Necessarily, it is the case. Keith. Yep. 
It is symbolic. But yeah. Well, and that's why I say this. This isn't just about chapter and verse. Of course, that's the root of all things. But Christian worldview isn't just happy with just parking at chapter and verse. It presents a whole cosmology, a whole way of viewing the world around you. And, and male headship in the family and in the church isn't just some weird exception to an otherwise neutered world. The world is gendered. And male headship in the family and in the church is a picture of what world history and what biblical cosmology looks like. Men must lead. This is a non-negotiable. And the church is one such place. So, back to Galatians 3.28. Can we see that this isn't saying gender doesn't matter? Okay? Or that ethnicity isn't real? Or that socioeconomic status isn't real? Can we see that's not what's going on here? What's going on here is all people have access to the throne of grace. All people have access. Okay? Anything else on that? Okay? Then, Romans 4. Keenan, wherever you want it to start. Wherever it makes sense to start. What's that? Oh, sorry. You did... You did the first one. Sorry, Keith. Okay. Yeah, keep going just to the end of the chapter, sure. Okay, so again, making the same argument as we see in Galatians, that the offspring of Abram, the descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand as the sea involves people in this room, regardless of your ethnicity. Okay? You're one of those stars in the sky. You're one of those 
sands on the sea. This is the great multitude of children that Abram was promised through faith. Through faith. Okay? Uh, and Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So that's uh, how we belong to the same faith or the same promise as Abram is through the same faith that Abram had. And if you're wondering, well, if this hasn't changed and we're saved the same way in the new covenant as they were in the old covenant, how could Abram, living thousands of years before Christ, how could Abram be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? If you mention the name Jesus Christ to Abram, what's he thinking? Never heard of this guy. What are you talking about, Jesus of Nazareth? I've never heard of him. How is Abram saved by faith in that one? I'm looking for some more interaction here. I'll go to you, but how is that possible? He believed the promise, yet, Caleb, you also had your hand up? Okay, yeah, so there's a solemn oath, right? And your, your mom was also correct here, through the promise. Abram believed insofar as the promise was given to him, right? And God cut it, as Caleb pointed out, with a very solemn promise. Who remembers the, the ceremony that attended God's covenant with Abram? Vern. What, what happened in that transaction? Only God passed through. For a covenant to be a covenant, this is important, there has to be the promise of death for transgressors. This is not a contract that people can exit out of by mutual agreement. A covenant means you will die. Fact, you will die if you break this. And by God passing between the pieces, and, and this is how covenants were cut generally back then. This wouldn't have been unique to Abram. You cut animals in half and you walk through saying, so be it to me if I break this covenant. I am taking the penalty of death on myself if I break the terms of this covenant. And God passes through the pieces and says, so be it to me if I ever break my word to you, Abram. For a covenant to be a covenant, death must be promised for transgressors. And God says, by passing through the pieces, I will take that death upon myself for covenant breakers. And he very much does that in Jesus Christ. Okay? But that's why those who are not in Jesus Christ will have to pass through the pieces on their own. Okay? If God did not take that death and that blood for you, you will take it for yourself. Someone will pass through the pieces. Somebody will die for breaking covenant. And if you're not in Christ, it will be you. Okay? And we all deserve to be the ones who die for being covenant breakers. And yet, through mercy in Christ, through the faith of Abram, as Abram is probably God-smacked, seeing that God himself is willing to take the curses of the covenant upon himself, that's the faith of Abram. He sees a God who is willing to sacrifice himself to the point of death for a covenant breaker like Abram. That's faith. Marina. That's right. All the curses get transferred onto him. He did not, Christ did not break the covenant. But that's what imputation is. All the curses, 
You read Deuteronomy 28, and the curses for covenant breaking are severe. (laughs) Miscarriages, droughts, famines, starvation, pestilence, being sacked by your enemies, all those curses, Christ says, that's on me. And then all the blessings that are promised for being a faithful covenant keeper, Christ does that perfectly, and all that righteousness gets transferred on to Marina Dirksen. And you didn't do any of it. <laughs> yes. There's, there's almost always conditions on covenants. And that is a whole nother nest. So people... <laughs> but it's good. Yep. If you do this, there's, there's almost always conditions in a covenant. And so then the question is, okay... So then does God's promise potentially fail? And the answer is no. Because something can be conditional and yet absolutely certain. What do I mean by that? What do I mean by that? Something can be conditional and yet certain. Howard. Right. His, and so his salvation, like yours, is conditional. You're not saved without repentance. That's the condition, that's the condition for Howard to be in. But that condition is certain because God has decreed at a moment in time, Howard Plett will get saving faith. And, and Abram too. Okay, so can you see how something can be conditional in a covenant and yet absolutely certain that it will come about? Does that help make sense? That there's certainty even when conditions are attached to something? Who's heard God forgives everyone unconditionally? Is that true? Absolutely not. God has never once in the history of the universe ever forgiven anyone unconditionally. Impossible. For God to forgive unconditionally would mean that he's negotiating his holiness. He forgives on the condition of Christ's atoning work and then of your faith grafting you into that. It's conditional and certain. Because faith isn't something you chose to muster up in yourself. Faith is a gift that God gave you at a point in time. It said, mine. This one's mine. I'm bringing him into my kingdom. Conditioned on your repentance, conditioned on your faith in Christ, and absolutely certain. This will come to pass because God is providential. Okay? So the, the reality of conditions doesn't mean that this is up for grabs. It means we do have conditions to fill. In Christ, they're all filled for us. So it's, it's certain. It's not like this covenant might get away on God, but there are conditions that we are obligated to. So they don't get that blessing. Uh, 
there's an element that's certain, but the, the Israelites many times break covenant. And when they do, they get exactly what's promised for being a covenant breaker. They don't stay in the land forever. I'd say that is a kind of death. And, and ultimately, it's spiritual death. It's spiritual separation from, uh, from Yahweh, from God. Um, but how is it different from a contract? Well, here's, okay, Jake, you probably don't grow barley anymore. No one does. So let's say it's corn, okay? Jake's a grain farmer, and Jake's going to grow some corn, and I'm a dairy farmer, and I need some corn. And, okay, okay. <laughs> Almost I'm a charismatic. I found somebody that still grows barley. <laughs> Miracles do happen. <laughs> So I say, Jake, I'm going to need 5,000 bushels of corn from you this year, and we agree on a price, and I say, yeah, I'll take delivery at such and such a time. Jake's going to grow it for me. We make a contract, okay? Jake has something I need, and I've got some money for my milk check that Jake needs, so this is how contracts work, right? Works out for everybody. And then about in August, Jake comes up to me, and he says, you know, Matt, uh, given the drought we've had this year uh, and the grasshoppers, I'm not going to be able to give you what I've contracted. And I say, well, that's actually okay because given my lack of hay production, I sold my cows, so I don't need it. So we can both, on mutual agreement, walk away from this. No harm, no foul. Right? By mutual agreement, we can both walk away. Everyone see this? Okay? That's a contract. A covenant isn't negotiated. God just comes with a covenant. And he's not interested in negotiating it. He just says, here's what's going to happen. Okay? No, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to flood the earth, and you're going to build this boat, and you're going to save eight people alive from your family, and this is how we're going to do it. He doesn't enter into a negotiation. Okay? He doesn't enter a negotiation with Moses on Sinai. God just says, here it is. This is it. Okay? And so when we say a covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered with attendant blessings and curses, each part of that is important. It is a bond in blood. You disobey, you will die. You will go to the lake of fire, ultimately. But there's temporal blessings and curses as well, like a good crop, or like getting kicked out of the land through a civil war because David's sons are brats, right? So there's, there's temporal curses as well and blessings, but ultimately this rests in our ultimate uh, destiny. But God doesn't negotiate these covenants. So they're a bond in blood. That means someone will have to die over the terms of these covenants if someone breaks it. It's sovereignly administered, meaning God comes with the paperwork already done. There's no negotiation to be happened. He just comes, th these are the terms. Sovereignly administered. And that also means he doesn't negotiate with who he enters into this covenant with. That's also determined as part of the sovereign administration. Noah, you're my guy. <laughs> Okay? Abram, you're my guy. Moses, you're my guy. Okay? I'm not going to Israel and just seeing who, who wants to come out. You're my guy. That's part of the sovereign administration. And then there's attendant blessings and curses. Do this, your women will get pregnant. Your vineyards will produce. You'll be healthy and fat in the land. Don't do this. Your enemies are going to end up driving you back out of here again. Okay? And that is the history of the Old Testament. <laughs> what happens when you break covenant with Yahweh? It doesn't go good. And the story of the New Testament is we have a covenant keeper who does it perfectly. Jeremy. Um, uh, 
That's what a rainbow is. God passing through the pieces. I'm going to take the arrow. I will send my son rather than flood the earth again. When you see a rainbow, it's not just colors. That's God promising to absorb in himself a curse. God taking death through his son. A rainbow is a very poor choice of symbols for enemies of God (laughs) to use because they have no idea what they are dealing with. Anything else? Then let's close. Father God, I want to thank you for your faithfulness. I want to thank you that even when you see our frail and sinful state, uh, that you don't cast us out into the darkness as we deserve, but you come with promise after promise after promise, covenant after covenant, as you unfold your plan leading up to Jesus Christ. Lord, and that in him you take the curse upon yourself. That blood is shed for us. You take the terms of your own covenant and deal with it directly so that we can escape the consequences and be counted righteous. Lord, and I pray that we would see what a tremendous gift this is, that we have been transferred from darkness into light, from death into life. Lord, thank you. And I thank you that you started this project many thousands of years ago, showing it in little step by little step by little step how you are recreating a whole new humanity through the promise that you gave to Abram. Lord, thank you that you've shown mercy to us, even as Gentiles and outsiders, to those old covenants, that we can be grafted in and be called your sons and daughters just as well. Lord, and I thank you... uh, I thank you for each promise that is ours through your son. I pray that we would walk in that in gladness and that we see that even when the conditions are attached that you have filled each one perfectly for us. Lord, you have given us a new heart with faith to receive those covenant promises and I pray that we would walk boldly and thankfully in each one of them knowing that there is no dividing wall between us and you. The curtain has been torn. The dividing wall of hostility is gone. Lord, we are your sons and daughters for real. And as we prepare to think about adoption in this confession next week, Lord, I pray that we would see what a wonderful blessing that is as well, that people who are not your children become your children through adoption. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. I pray that you'd be with us the rest of this morning as we prepare to worship you in music, in prayer and the reading and instruction from your word. Thank you for your kindness to us, and we pray this all in the strong name of Jesus, and amen.